ride with me in my foul life. What's up, podcast world? Chad Belding back at you. Another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Thank you again so much for subscribing and leaving us ratings and reviews and telling your friends and family today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Gerber Knives. We use Gerber Knives pretty much in everything we do. You've heard me talk about it before. I think that a knife, a good blade, a saw, something that you can build with, something that you can butcher with, something you can process with, um, it all is necessary and I don't know if there's anything more important. I mean, I know you need a gun. I know you need ammo, but you got to have a good knife. You got to have a good saw. You have to have the tools of the trades, guys. And Gerber has it all from building our blinds, concealing us to to making sure that we're able to get natural vegetation. Of course, we get the landowner's permission first to the butchering of the game, whether it's ducks or geese and taking the meat off of the bone, off of the breastbone, getting the tenderloin out, the breast meat, whether it's skin on, fat on, fat off, whether we're plucking the whole bird and then using an ax that Gerber makes or something like their shears to be able to remove the legs and the neck and the wing bones it's just it, we, we all understand how important a sharp knife is obviously safety is a huge part of it and making sure you know how to use your knife but check out everything that gerber offers we are so humbled and so proud to be partnered with gerber big things coming with them in the near future and uh, we can't wait until you guys see what we have around the corner. So thank you, Gerber. Thank you for everything that you do. Made in America, everybody that you employ and how you support the hunting, hunting heritage and hunting community and lifestyle. Gerber, check them out. And today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Vortex Optics, another tool of the trade necessary for consistent success in the field. The scouting is so important, not just seeing birds flying off the roost or the loaf and where they're feeding, but where are they landing in a field? Where are you going to access the field from? Where's the high points in the fields? Where's your vantage point going to be? Where's the best tree line? Where's the wind coming out of? And then you can use your binoculars, your spotting scope and a notepad to be able to make sure that you set yourself up to the best of your ability and advantage for the next morning's or next afternoon's hunt. So again, scouting is key, guys. We all understand that the most important part of a duck hunt is being where ducks want to be or goose hunt or you any animal you chase you have to be where the animals are you want to be on the x but if you can't you get in between them from the roost and the x and you use your binoculars to find these hunts you use your binoculars to find day loaves you use your optics to find roost you use your optics to find where the birds are going into a field where they're coming in into the field how they're approaching it where they're landing on those high vantage points like i said before so we depend on vortex to make sure that we're always equipped with the best visual aids that we can through our optics and again that is our spotting scopes on tripods and window mounts and binoculars eight by 42s is what i use on a daily basis and i love to scout i love being behind the the steering wheel i love being on the back roads of america and looking for wild ducks and wild animals and seeing the beauty that america has on a daily basis and that's what being a hunter and a provider allows us to do and our guest today does that a lot he's a guide he's a scouter he's a fisher he's a hunter he's sam the bull sam the salad man sabini i just nicknamed him that because he made us an unbelievable homemade salad dressing the other day and he's here and what do you i mean when i talk about vortex and gerber like that obviously we're partners with them but you you know like when i'm trying to paint those pictures you kind of see what i'm saying as far as 
finding the hunt, the scout, the fun that goes into that. I mean, as a guide, you love that time of day where it's waking up from the nap and you get a little food in you and it's time to, you know, start thinking about the next day's hunts and getting those clients taken care of. How important, how fun is, how much do you look forward to the actual scouting part of the hunt? I really look forward to scouting. It's one of my favorite things to do, whether I'm doing it for work or doing it for fun, you know, going down to the Canvasback Duck Club and Maybe it's a Thursday or Friday afternoon and if the sun's up, I'm going to spend my time driving around looking for ducks. Even if we already think we know where we're going to hunt, I'm going to go look for another spot for the next day or a better spot. And I just love seeing those birds work and go into fields and go into ponds, even if it's not hunting season. So looking at animals and scouting around and being out in the hills or in the marsh is one of my favorite things to do. And do you think as, a, as, as far as what I just spoke about in your truck on any given day, whether it's hunting season or not, you have a knife or binoculars somewhere on your front seat, back seat, windshield, somewhere in your truck, in your console, you're going to find those two apparatuses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have two trucks and I have knives and binoculars in both of them at all times. All times, huh? Yeah. And that's the thing is that when people think binos or binoculars or optics, they think big game hunting, spotting a deer, using a spot and scope to look across the, a big ravine or a canyon at a sheep or an elk, right? Yeah. Waterfowl hunters use optics like crazy. Yeah, I think, and I think it's something that's, really underrated in waterfowl hunting but we hunt with binoculars in the blind every day obviously in the truck spotting scope as well and uh being able to look further away than you can see with your naked eyes really giving me an advantage in waterfowl hunting that i don't think everybody utilizes and a lot of times you know on the scout you guys you'll pull up on a field and you'll see the birds where they're at and they might be down in a crevice or in a ravine or down in a low spot but I would venture to say that 99% of the time they didn't land down there. Now, a couple flocks might, but they don't like landing down into low parts. It makes them feel uneasy. It builds anxiety in their brains, in my opinion. I think that the scout is getting there early enough to see those first couple flocks coming into that field and seeing where they're, you know, what they're focusing on and where they're hitting, right? I want to make sure that you that we tell people that just because you see them there and they're all huddled up down, you know, down in a ravine doesn't mean that that necessarily is where you want to put your decoy spread that the next day. Do you know what I mean? Because I've had that happen where I get down there and then the wind and everything is the same as the day we scouted it. And they don't like finishing down there. They'll finish high and then walk down there. Have you, have you seen that happen? Yeah, I completely agreed. And I saw it a lot the year that I worked down in Texas. Um, we'd hunt fields that are a full section a mile by a mile. And you really want to be, set up in the spot of those fields where those birds are going to naturally, whether it's on a high spot or off to one side, you would see birds when you're scouting, maybe real up close to a pivot. And like you said, I don't think they like landing there. I think there's spots that they land and then there's spots that they walk to as the food becomes consumed by the flock. And as they move about in the field, it's not always through the air. And when you're setting up initially in the morning, you really want to be in that ideal spot where they want to land. Yeah. And I think that, you know, scouting is everything and it's so fun. And it's just like part of the, you know, the culture. And, and I look forward to it as much as I do the hunt, you know, just cause you, you're getting to see so many different places. You might come upon something that you didn't know was in the area. And whether you're in a, your home state or a new state or a Canadian province, just being able to get on those back roads and, and explore, you become literally a naturalist and an explorer. I'm not saying or comparing us to Lewis and Clark by any means, but we're exploring, we're finding new territory We're we might find a new loaf. We might find, we might be scouting ducks 
and f- drive up on and see a couple of ducks or geese pitch into a pond that we never knew was back there. And we just, boom, get our binoculars up. And then we see, oh man, look at that. You can see them swimming through the trees or through the cattails or whatever. And we find a new place. We're exploring. And then we're out scouting for ducks and geese. And we're like, man, that looks like a great place that would hold a lot of coyotes or a lot of bobcats. Might be a good place for a trap line. Might be a good place to set up on that hill and that vantage point right there and call a coyote in. I don't know how many times we've done that in Canada and in the continental United States of, you know, searching for an, another animal, whether it was deer, or antelope, and being like, we're coming back here. We're, you know, we're, we're setting a mark and, and, and dropping a pin right here or setting, a, you know, a mark on our GPS to come back here and call this because it looks predator-ish, right? It looks like a coyote could live here. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And like you touched on, I think scouting new places and new states and areas is actually more fun to me than where I hunt every day. You know, when when I'm hunting at home in Nevada, I I got my loop. I know where all the roads go and I know what ponds to look at and where the birds like to be. But getting in a new area and finding a new water hole or finding a new field or a road or a new complete different area and landscape is, uh, you know, new scenery is always appreciated to me. Yeah, and I, you know, you guys hunted the canvas back, which you can get up on the tower and you scout, or you can go up to the public area, like we talked about in the episode you guys you were on with your dad Tom before. But being in a new area and challenging yourself and putting miles on the truck, I mean, it's nothing to put a hundred miles on a truck in Canada in the afternoon. It's nothing to do that. I mean, even in Kansas, if you're really after them and you, there's a lot of dirt roads. This country is so much bigger than we know about as we sit in this little studio right here. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun and driving around, you know, when I was in Texas, a couple hundred mile day was not uncommon to go scout a field in the morning and then go look at a water hole in the afternoon and back to another field at night and then maybe loop back around to double check the spot you want to hunt in the morning. And I'd never had a problem being behind the steering wheel or behind the windshield. I know scouting probably in most guide services is kind of looked at it as the grunt job or the new guy job. And I loved it. Yeah, I don't I don't know. if I mean, I agree with what you're saying. And it's looked at like that. But I feel lucky when when I get to go scout. It's just fun. You know, you find them, you set up in the back of your truck, get your spotting scope set up. Or, you know, you might have a cooler where you're drinking a, a, a Coca-Cola out of that cooler during scouting hours. And you're and you're you're just reminiscing about everything, telling stories, telling jokes, cutting up, looking for new places. It might have a, a meeting area where you guys all convene and, and come together at some point in the day to look at a hunt. You might find a hunt, but like you said before, you go look at another one and the hunt that you're going to hunt the next day, you always put those birds to bed. You wait until it's dark and they're leaving that field. So you know that potentially a fox or a coyote didn't run through there and scare them up. An eagle didn't fly over them and bust them up. And they went a mile away and found a new food, food source and a new feed for the morning and you didn't know that because you only saw them there at three o'clock but you didn't go back at 5 30 to put them to bed so putting them to bed is a very integral and, and, and important part of the process also yeah i mean sit there like you said sit there till dark and there's nothing else to do i like scouting i like driving around turn on some good music watch the sunset watch the birds go down and then gives you that added confidence for your morning hunt yeah and you know you don't want to if you drive back there to put them to bed and they're gone and you're like, oh, there's a few things that could have happened. One, a bunch of Canada geese and mallards were in there and all these snows moved in on them. And they can't, Canada geese and mallards can't stand snows most of the time. So they got up and went and found a new feed because of the aggressiveness and selfishness of those snow geese. 
or a fox or a coyote or a predator or a bird of prey flew over them or ran through them, pushed them out of there. If they're not there, they might not come back to that field more. And that's not to say that you're not going to see enough geese to have opportunity or ducks to have opportunity with a good spread and good calling and, and your mojos or whatever going. But getting on the X is important. So putting them to bed and, and, and not leaving your, 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 your choice A, right? Your number one choice, you need to put that field to bed and then have backup plans if something does happen. Yeah, and that's the benefit of having a good team and a good group of guys working together is you can spread out and scout multiple locations and then all meet up at the end of the night and come up with a game plan to make sure you are on your number one field. Yeah, and you, you being on the X is awesome, but I do find some you know challenge once in a while of not being on it and getting in between them or somewhere close and seeing what you can do. Yeah. That doesn't mean that if they're, if somebody else beats you to the X, you go and disrupt their hunt by getting in the field right next to them. I don't believe in that. You know, if they beat you, they beat you. Um, but I'm talking about if the landowner doesn't allow hunting or there's some reason why you can't, or the, the X is closed zone of hunting, you know, it's, it's a lot more difficult not to be on the X no, and, I, and consistently be successful. I agree. And like you said, it's, I don't think you should ever try to interrupt someone else's hunt but if there's a natural reason be it landowner permission or close to hunting like you were saying that you can't be on the x and if you can pull off a good hunt running traffic that's one of the best feelings at the end of the day oh i agree 100 percent. so i want to get down to it you've been you know one night at a party you brought over some speckle belly pastrami which we ended up doing the recipe and showing people how to lay that out you've talked about these ribs you've been doing these these duck lunches you've been making you're a huge fan of the traeger love the traeger got into the traeger four four or five years ago why why do you love it so much i just love the simplicity of using it it's easy turn it on let it go the wood fired flavor is obviously the best part getting that little smoke on the food you know changing up the different chips do i want a really smoky heavy slow cooked meal do i want something kind of hot and fast with just a little bit of wood flavor maybe a milder pellet like an alder or an apple and just the diversity and the ease of use and the fact that you can cook everything on it i mean it it really it takes over our our range our oven our barbecue you can do it all and i've heard so many people say they barely cook in their kitchen anymore I almost never cook in the kitchen anymore. If I need to do something on a frying pan or in the morning or maybe something real easy and quick to add to the trigger, you know, compliment it, I will. But it's most of my cooking's done outside now. And that's another thing I love about it, especially in the summer and when it's starting to get nice like it is now in the spring. Being able to cook outside and eat your food outside is awesome. As long as you're six feet away yeah. from the person you're with. <laughs> this virus little man, different rules right now it's a little different rules but that's the coolest thing about loving traeger and loving wild game preparation and cooking the bounty right living off the land being a provider the provider mentality the hunter gatherer conservationist fisher mentality is how how many hours do we spend alone I mean, when we go hunting or we're out with our dog, you know, that's, you can say that your dog is a mate and you can't really have conversation with the dog, but as a hunter, a turkey hunter, deer hunter, duck hunter, duck hunting is a little different because there's camaraderie and sometimes there's more than one person in the blind, but the mentality of a provider and a hunter is isolation. 
being alone, exploring, finding new areas, going into places that that a lot of people don't ever see in their life, getting in there and living with the animals and being in a tree stand for hours at a time or you're back up against a tree in the turkey woods or being in a duck blind by yourself or with a couple buddies. We're, we, we, we have developed a, a mentality where we don't always have to be with somebody we don't have to be at the grocery store all the time. And with the Traeger and our ability to have these freezers full of wild meat, both, you know, to eat ourselves and with our family and our immediate family, we're able to share, right, and give to our extended family or friends or the community, homeless shelters, people that might not have, be able to get to the store and get meat right now. And a lot of the stores are out of it, you're seeing across the country. So how cool is it that everything that we've learned in our life through our grandpas and our great grandpas and our dads and our uncles and aunts and everybody that's been a part of our mentor mentoring. Isn't it awesome feeling to be able to go in that backyard with a bunch of ducks that you harvested in December and put them on that Traeger and be able to like, boom, here you go. I didn't buy this. I harvest, I, I hone my skills enough to be proficient enough and consistent enough in my, in my presentation, in my duck calling, my decoying, my scouting, everything that goes into it here we go. We're eating wild game. Yeah. It's, it's my favorite part. And that's my favorite part about cooking is, is cooking for other people and seeing the reactions on their faces. And you get some really unique reactions, especially with wild game and ducks and foods that are maybe looked at as, Oh, I wouldn't eat that. I can't buy it. It's not normal. It's not what I'm used to eating, but getting a group of people together that are trying something new for the first time and pulling it off and showing them how you said it, like you took it from, from its natural living environment to harvesting it, processing it, cleaning it, cooking it, and then serving it and seeing the, you know, the enjoyment on their face of eating something new or trying something for the first time is really one of what I enjoy the most about cooking. What is your, your go-to right now? What would you say is your favorite wild game or lay out a couple of them for me? What you've, you're mainly a waterfowl hunter, so I assume that you're going to have ducks in there, geese in there. This speckle belly pastrami that you did is awesome as a meal or as a sandwich or as a snack. You know, you what we did is we we vacuum sealed it and then froze a bunch of packages of it. You can take it out as needed for a blind bag snack or a, a quick gym snack or whatever, right? What, give me some of your favorites you've been doing. Some of my favorites that I've been doing. Re yeah, like you said, recently I've been trying to get more into the creative cooking process and doing things different than you know taking the ducks and wrapping them with jalapenos and bacon and the normal and i still like poppers i still make a ton of those um that pastrami turned out really good duck sausage duck game sticks i i am really starting to like things like that that i can cook in big batches and freeze and have later as blind snacks or road snacks or maybe just plate it real quick as an appetizer when i don't have a lot of time to cook uh you know, ducks are always my go-to for things that I'm cooking. Like I said, I have the most of those. Um, I also really enjoy doing venison. I enjoy deer hunting. I enjoy processing that. And I think that as I've learned more about butchering and learned more about processing from friends and working in restaurants that can look at a, a big animal like an elk or a deer and, and cut it up like a beef and see more of those different cuts and more different recipes and ways you can cook them, whether it's slow cooking it like an osabuco or doing the ribs, you know, or just doing the backstraps like a steak. When you talk about the butchering part of it, and we talked about Gerber at the beginning of this, 
the mentality that we discussed with the binoculars and the scouting, right? And how much pride we take into that. How cool of a feeling is it to be able to butcher? I've, I don't know if I've ever said it on a podcast and I bet you I have, but I've said it on TV and in other places. My godfather, Lauren Biglieri was a professional butcher his whole career. I'm so envious of butchers like to run a knife like that. And then what you said to know all the, I've, you know, been with butchers in their shops in South Dakota, North Dakota, all over Kansas, Arkansas, out West here and seeing their mentality and their intelligence level and their passion for what they do and knowing every part of that animal and every cut and where it all is and what is a backstrap or a tenderloin or a rump roast or a shoulder roast or, you know, where do chops come from and what are short ribs as opposed to regular, you know, all of the things that go into the different cuts of meat that we hear sirloin or ribeye or, or filet mignon, where do they come from? You know, how do you cut the tongue out of a cow? What about the cow brain that you see a lot of, a lot of, you know, different origins and ethnic backgrounds eat, you know, what are the sweetbreads and the, in the different, the, the stomach lining and the trepe of a cow's stomach, and then the glands in a, cl- a cow's throat or a deer's throat or an elk's throat to make sweetbreads that Spanish Basque and Italian Basque made so famous, you know, like being a butcher is awesome. And knowing your way around a knife and being able to do all those cuts with different length blades and knowing how to sharpen a knife real quick and, and not cut your finger off or slice yourself. Isn't it an awesome feeling to, to be able to grab a knife and, and, and have a deer hanging there and then sit there and go, here's the ribs, here's the brisket, here's the, here's the chops, here's, here's the tenderloin, here's the backstrap. Isn't it a great feeling? Yeah, it's, it's, it is a great feeling. And it's something that I felt really accomplished in learning myself. And I've had some really great people teach me how to process big game meat and hang it and what to, you know, what to hang and let dry age and whatnot to, and how you want to cut things up. So you get the most efficient cuts and the most out of the animal that you are butchering. And it's, it's really fun. I've always done my big game animals myself and I've really enjoyed doing that and looking up recipes and getting inspiration from maybe combining two recipes I found together to make, all your own sausages and steaks and cuts of meat. And it's, it's something that I look forward to at the end of a successful hunt a lot. Yeah, I, I do too, man. I just love the idea of using a knife to be able to dis, you know, just discard, just make sure that like discard's not the right word, but to be able to break that animal down and use every part of it that you can, you know, you, there's so many different parts of, of animals that we eat as hunters or learn to eat as hunters and gatherers through our mentors or through other hunters that it just makes it that much more fun and that much more interesting and that much more challenging. And then after you learn how to become a better butcher, then it's processing it. You know, what are the best ways to process shrink wrapping, getting all the fat off of the the meat, you know, that's still part of butchering, but before you freeze it, what do you do? Do you age it? What, what, what are all the different techniques that you can really get into? And I've been, I've been watching this show on Netflix called the chef show. I turned you on to it. I think I've yes. been bragging about John Favreau and how, all the things that he has accomplished in Hollywood from his early days with Vince Vaughn. And, you know, they did made, they did, um, what is the one movie that they did? I can't even think of it when they were in Vegas made was the Italian mafia one. And then they did the one, 
God, I can't even believe I can't think of it. But, you know, he's done Iron Man and he did the breakup with Vince Vaughn. He's done so much in Hollywood. And then all of a sudden he is got this passion for cooking and he's visiting these restaurants and these chefs like Wolfgang and these other guys. His, his co-host is a chef that owns a place in Vegas, a couple places. And I'm just watching the different techniques. They've done sourdough bread and they've done salads and they've done meats and they've done fish or seafoods. And it's amazing, you know, like the curing process. I just, did you watch the episode they did on the salmon curing at the, the Jewish deli in Los Angeles? Yes. Yeah, I love curing. I love brining. I love the ability, you know, the idea of, of how is that different from just marinating or, or dry rubbing something? And what does it do to cure something and, you know, encompass the whole body of meat in there and then wash it off and what you do with it after that. So I just think that after the butchering process comes that processing and that vision of being a chef with, you know, being a visionary of like, what am I going to do with this? And on that episode, um, in the Jewish deli that his co-host even makes a comment like, oh no, it was in an, it was in a, uh, with the guy that, that did Spider-Man, they did a pasta with him and he brought, he brought over vegetables from his garden and Ramey, his name is, and, his John Favreau's co-host, this, this, this Oriental guy, I believe he is, throws together this pasta with the vegetables. And he, he goes, man, I just envisioned it. When I saw what you brought in, I knew we had this and this, and I knew it was going to go with this and this. And I just envisioned, I made that up and there in John Favreau and Ramey are just sitting there eating it like, Oh my God, this is so good. And I think that's a lot how we cook is just like we envision it as we're sitting there and butchering it and processing it. We're like, all right, I think I'm going to try this with it. I'm going to try to cure this like you do with that spec and do a pastrami with it. And it turned out unreal to where everybody at the party that night was like, holy shit, who made this pastrami? Where'd you get the beef? And you're like, well, that's California or Texas speckle belly goose. And you envision that pastrami when you were killing it or when you were processing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's fun. And it, it just adds another element of element to cooking for me of it's not just something that you bought in the store or a pre-marinated tri-tip. And those things are easy to use and they have their place. But for me personally, I really like if I can take it all the way from hunting to butchering to processing, seasoning and cooking and serving, it's, it's kind of the total experience. I agree hundred percent. And he, that, that show is just a really cool, um, testimonial of what it is to, to become a provider and he, he's not actually out killing the animals. John Favreau's not, but I would, I would venture, you know, even though he's in Hollywood, I would venture that he might go out and hunt with his attitude on this show and the way that he envisions food and his pride and passion. And it's amazing. His love for and passion for food on that show. I'm sure you'll agree. So when I'm sitting there listening to him talk about the gardens and the vegetables and the fresh fishes and, and how they did it in Russia when they were doing curing in Russia and smoking fish in Russia, as opposed to the Pacific Northwest. And, and there's a lot of intelligence. You can tell he's got a lot of intelligence and education. He's done a lot of homework and educated himself and, and took on a lot of teaching from other chefs and, and professionals that have rounded him into this cook that he is. And I love seeing that to where he's given me so many ideas on that show um, to try different things and make things up. And I think that's, you know, everybody's always been Chad, you got to have a cookbook or what's the recipe you did for that? We'll put a recipe for, let's say, duck fajitas on the deal. I did it in a parking lot in Canada one time with Dave Stanley, literally in a parking lot, 
had nothing. We just had a couple ingredients that we had and the store was closed. We were able to get a few ingredients from the hotel owner and, and I did these duck fajitas and tacos and I had no idea what I put in them. I was just so passionate about it and I envisioned it like I'm doing this and I got these spices and I got bell pepper, I got onions, or I got gar- whatever I had, jalapenos, whatever. I don't remember exactly, but I find myself saying that a lot. Like, I don't know what I put in it. I don't, I might remember some of the ingredients, not all of them. I definitely don't remember the measurements, right? I just started throwing shit together. And the next thing I know, I'm tasting it as a chef does, as a chef should do through the cooking process and keep tasting it, making sure that it's not too salty or needs more salt. It's too spicy. needs a little bit more sweetener or whatever, you know? And then you, you have all these people like, I want that recipe. I want that recipe. And the, the way that these guys are cooking there, you can tell that they, on the chef show, John Favreau, you can tell that a lot of the mentality of the original recipe, I'm, they had to, I'm thinking they had to discipline themselves to go back and go, all right, we are going to measure this out. We are going to write a list down of everything that we're putting in to this recipe today. And I see that in their mentality to be able to just go in and throw things together and create masterpieces through vision. Yeah. And, and I like, I like doing it how you said too, where you're kind of freestyling and you're just either, you know, particularly in times like these right now, we're using what we have and, you know, not everything's available. I went to make pizza yesterday and there was no flour and no yeast at the store. So I had to go back on that plan and do something else. But I think that there is a definitely for restaurants and competition style people. I've heard you talk with Chad Ward about having notebooks and notebooks and notebooks full of temperature and seasonings and times and different flavors and and there is times where I wish I would have written things down more and then I could go back and replicate them but I also have fun trying to re-replicate them off the top of my head and maybe when I try to do it it turns out a little different but maybe I'll learn something new and maybe it turns out better yeah, and that's what John Favreau said on the show. And by the way, the name of that other movie was Swingers. I kept wanting to say Slickers, but I'm like, no, it's not City Slickers. It's Swingers with Vince Vaughn, if you haven't seen it, badass movie. He he makes, uh, he talks about that as far as his sourdough bread and having all of these notes on different doughs and different waters used and different air temperature it was. And did he have the ingredients refrigerated or chilled beforehand or were they room temperature and how it acted and how the yeast and how all the dough raised and how, you know, all of the different notes he's taken over the years. He started notebooks and journaling and writing them down. So he's kind of like mastered it now. Like the oven's got to be on this temperature for this long. I'm going to turn it down at this long. Whatever it is, he's got his technique now. But I guarantee you, originally when he was just spitballing it and trying it, he couldn't have told somebody how to cook that bread or bake that bread, you know? So, you know, he's becoming proficient in all these different areas of food, which is the provider mentality, I think. It's not just about being, you know, simplifying everything. It's about challenging yourself. And a lot of recipes are simple. That duck fajita recipe was simple for me to throw together, but some people don't have the vision to be able to do that or know the first steps to take. Like, well, you have a lemon. Would a lemon go with? Yeah, there's some citrus in that. You know, I'm going to use that as some zest off of it, or I'm going to use a little lemon juice squeeze out of it to enhance the flavor of this. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we fail. We, we know that and we just get, we try again. But I think a lot of it's trial and error. And I love just being a, that provider mentality of throwing wild game recipes together and I don't know how many have we done in the last two weeks to where we're like, man, like that elk filler the other day on those stuffed bell peppers. For real. That stuff was good. Turned out awesome. Turned out legit. And I was like, well, what? We got all this pasta left over from the wild widgeon pasta that we had just done two days before. 
the longer a pasta sits, as long as you don't let it spoil, but sauce and the gravy part of it, you know, it, as it ages, it tastes better as all of those ingredients keep, you know, embodying each other and, and combining with each other. They, they end up tasting better as it ages, right? Correct. There's no secret to that. It's like a fine wine, like a good steak. And, and we took that and we blended it up in the Vitamix and we use that as our base of the filler to where a lot of stuffed bell pepper recipes have rice mixed with a red sauce, mixed with whatever meat and vegetables, right? I wanted it to be more of a a different consistency of having all of that pepper filled up with mainly rice, where I wanted it to be more of that elk meat. It was wild elk meat stuffed in that, you know, that was blended. The elk meat wasn't blended, but it was combined with that blended pasta with all of the ingredients, all of the spices and the basils and the seasoning salts and everything that went into it. At the end of the day, when we took it out and tasted it and stuffed those peppers and put the peppers back on the Traeger, then took them off, it tasted unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, mixing things together like that is fun. And using leftovers is always good. You know, I can't, you don't like letting any food go to waste. So being able to use what you have and just go with it, I think sometimes turns out better than having a recipe to follow. I do too. And I think, but I don't know if a lot of people cook that way. That's why cookbooks are so popular. People actually follow ingre- recipes down to a T, this much, this many cups, this many teaspoons, tablespoons, this much vinegar, this much honey, whatever it is. And that's why Rachel Ray and Martha Stewart and all of these people that have awesome, Stephen Rinella, these awesome cookbooks out there. Hank Shaw's another one. Have you ever read his cookbook, Duck, Duck, Goose? I haven't. You ought to get that. I have it here. I'll let you borrow it. He's got Duck, Duck, Goose. He's got Buck, Buck, Moose for big game recipes. And I mean, he's, he's in California. Great outdoor chef. Scott Layseth, you know, the, 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 he's got a show on the Sportsman's Channel. And he's all about wild game cooking. He's, I've cooked with him in California, not with him, but alongside him and watched him do his thing. He's awesome at it. It's just about having vision and confidence of being able to, like, I can do this. Yeah, I mean, and all recipes got to start somewhere, and I think that that's how the great ones come about is just by going with what you have and going off of a feeling or, you know, a thought that you had, just like we made that salad dressing a couple days ago, and I was driving down the road in my truck, and I thought, well, why don't we just make the dressing from stuff we have, too, and started thinking and things in my mind, threw a few things together, put them in Well, take me through it. What were you thinking? What were you, what, how, you're in your truck driving, what were you thinking of? Well, I was thinking it started with roasted peppers and I thought, all right, we want a Southwestern style dressing, you know, something with a little spice to it, kind of a ranch based Chipotle somewhere along that. And I thought, well, we'll just whip up the ranch dressing together and we'll add some, some Chipotle or some Tony's and get that going in there make it a little spicy. I love spicy ranch dressing. So mix it together and we got to your house, threw it together. You know, I tasted it, you tasted it. We talked back and forth about what it might need added a little citrus a little more salt and i think we got it pretty good after that and that tabasco chipotle is awesome as as part of it but you know it wasn't like you just poured some ranch hidden valley ranch dressing in there as your base because you made mention just now it would have a ranch dressing base but you made your own with the cream and the mayonnaise and the dill and all of the other ingredients that went in to the base of what would become a southwestern chipotle style spicy ranch dressing that was made from ingredients that everybody probably are assuming, which that could make you look like an idiot, but assuming that most people have in their refrigerator and pantry at any given time. Yeah, I agree. And that's, you know, one of the things we were going for, especially right now. And I think the things we used 
everyone would have, or most people would have, at least three quarters of those ingredients around to make, you know, a dressing that's close, and it doesn't have to be exactly like ours. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. So I, I don't, I, I wanted to, you know, just come on here quick today in between some of these recipes we're filming and just, and just talk about some of the things that were on my mind, and and then I started talking about Gerber and Vortex, and it started. There's just so much to talk about that is encompassed in this waterfowling hunter provider mentality. And I think that now with the, the coronavirus going on and our ability to educate people, our, abil- our unique ability to be alone and not be afraid of isolation, our unique ability to be able to, to harvest animals and provide for ourselves and our family and other people, there's never been a more important time to educate people on this, Sammy, and to be able to go and share our wild game and give to people and, and make sure that people are taken care of in a time of need. And that's what hunters do. We are compassionate about the animals we pursue and harvest. We work our asses off through conservation agencies like SCI, Safari Club International, Ducks Unlimited and Delta and California Waterfowl and North American Wild Sheep and, and you name a mule deer. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, I said before, you got you have uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Unlimited. There's so many of them that are w- working relentlessly to, you know, h- help these the populations of wildlife through conservation efforts and habitat and political and all of the things that they're fighting for. Um, hunters are there. We're the ultimate conservationist and we have the ability right now to help people, to show people that this is who we are. This is what we, this is our skill set. Let us share our meat with you. Let us show you how to, you know, prepare this wild game for your family because you might not be able to go get a, you know, some pork chops or something right now if the stores are all out of them. Yeah, it's, it's a really good feeling and it's, like you said, I've, I'm comfortable being alone, whether it's on top of a mountain or sitting in a duck blind by myself with just my dog and being able to help people through that and show them that, you know, even though you're alone, everyone's still here together and being able to find your way that you fit in is nice. And the added bonus is having that freezer full of game meat. And, you know, I got some venison and we have plenty of ducks, obviously, and we've given some to the neighbors and I gave some to the next door neighbor the other day and just hit him with a little quick recipe on how to grill some of those ducks, super simple, super easy. And then, you know, he got back to me and said that he was one thankful for the meat and two loved the recipe. And that's a really good feeling, especially right now to be able to help others and do as much as you can for the community and everyone around you. I agree. And right now we're getting ready to go do it again. We have Jim Ray that gave us some wild sheep and wild venison. And I wanted to, we're going to do this for Traeger of what can you do with something that you have in your possession right now as a hunter, as a fisher, and Jim Ray's coming over and bringing some wild deer and wild sheep, and we have a little bit of wild duck that we're going to use also, but they want us to do a recipe of just what we just talked about. We can't get to the store. We're staying quarantined. What do we have in our pantry? What do we have in our freezers? What do we have in our refrigerator as a provider? Wild game mentality right now, and we've been asked to send this recipe in. So we're going to go use this wild sheep and wild deer and some wild duck. And we're going to do something simple. Shish kebabs. We have, people have bell peppers, people have onions and people have some seasoning, maybe a marinade and they have some kind of meat, hopefully in their freezer. So we're able to take that 
and prepare this shish kebab meal out of wild game and show people this is how easy it is. Here was our vision beforehand. Here's the application and the process. Boom. And here's the end results of these shish kebabs on a Traeger grill. So we're going to go do that right now for Traeger. That's Sam the Salad Man. Sam the Salamander. Sam the Bull Sabini. Thank you, buddy. No, thank you. Appreciate you being on here. Today's episode, again, was brought to brought to you by our friends at Gerber and Vortex. Please continue to support the partners and sponsors that support all of our brands here at The Foul Life. This life ain't for everybody. Banded, Avery, Greenhead Gear, Jargon. Thank you all so much. And don't forget to keep that provider mentality strong in your mindset. I hope you guys are getting your workouts in, getting your cardio in, spending quality time with your family. Thank you for supporting everything that we're doing here. Tom, go ahead and hit that button, 2 a.m. Logic. This song is called My Foul Life. Thank you all. Wow.